All right, welcome back, everybody. This is now the fifth episode of the PhD podcast. Uh, I'm Jason Avedesian. I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Harjeev Singh. And we have a really special guest with us uh, this morning slash this evening, because we're all in three different time zones, me being in Las Vegas, Harjeev being in New Jersey, and Tom across the pond. So we've had a little bit of a difficulty trying to coordinate schedules, but we were able to make it work. Uh, so we're having Tom Gretton on with us today, and Tom and I go back quite a few years. Uh, we both completed uh, our master's work at Ball State University in Little Muncie, Indiana. Tom, thanks for joining us today. I know when Arjeev and I started formulating the, you know, the ideas for the PhD podcast and some of the, you know, guests that we were targeting, I knew that you were someone that we really wanted to get on. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Excited for it. So, so Tom, just to, to give you know, our listeners a little bit of, you know, background on yourself, because we've had, you know, a number of PhD students from across the world and, you know, across the, the United States. If you could just give, you know, our listeners, you know, a little background on yourself, you know, where you come from and, you know, some of the work that you're doing right now at, at Florida State University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, so right now, currently about to go into second year of my PhD at Florida State University, which is in sports psychology. Uh, advisor is Dr. David Eccles there. Um, got a few different sort of things going on at the moment with research and, and applied work obviously is on pause right now, but I'll come to some of the other research studies a little bit later on, I suppose. Um, sort of like my journey, I guess, maybe that's a good way to sort of pick it up. Perfect, yeah. um, so I did my undergrad over in England uh, at Durham University, um, which is, you know, I'm, I'm very proud that I went there. It's a terrific school in the UK. Um, but up until going to undergrad, you know, I was never, never really a high flyer academically or anything. You know, I was, I was a pretty down the middle sort of average student. And, uh, you know, I had a pretty harsh lesson when I was, you know, late in high school. Um, you know, I wanted to go into a career in rugby and uh, my coach sort of sat me down and said, that I wasn't going to make it. And uh, he was absolutely correct. I was never going to make it, although I would have loved to. Um, but it, you know, from that moment on, I sort of prioritised wanting to get into academics more. And I studied harder in my final sort of two years of high school and turned around to get to Durham. And then I did um, <clears throat> an undergrad there for three years in sports science. And uh, just a brilliant three years there. I mean, <clears throat> some of the, my best memories, uh, my best mates are from there. <clears throat> just um, a terrific time and I <clears throat> was very fortunate to be to be at Durham University um, I think during my during my time at Durham I, I sort of had um, a few really important uh, people that helped me along the way um, Dave Eccles who was my advisor at, at the time at Durham <clears throat> was one of the main ones as well as uh, Emily Oliver and some other people in the university but um, there was one particular lady who, who spoke um, something very important, which was about wanting to make a difference in sports science and, you know, how she sort of felt that we'd gone down this trend in sports science back then, which was like, you know, 2013, 2014. We'd gone down this sort of trend where, you know, we were very comfortable with the areas of sports science that we had. Um, you know, we knew about physiology, we knew about nutrition. Of course, we were learning more about these things, but we were very comfortable with the different disciplines within sports science. And she really sort of just challenged me to think about that and, and, su- and suggested that if I wanted to make a difference that I, that I had to really understand that sports science has a lot more to offer. And so that's when I sort of got my own incentive to, to start 
figuring out ways to be more impactful with the work I was doing. I didn't just want to go straight into a job after undergrad. And that's when I decided that I, I sort of was like, well, there we go. I'll up sticks and head to the States. And so my advisor, Dave at Durham, he, he had previously been at Florida State and uh, recommended going across across the pond. And so I applied um, to FSU to, and then to Ball State and I didn't get into FSU and I obviously went to Ball State instead and I did the dual masters there. Uh, that was in sports psychology and then clinical mental health counseling. And I spent three years at Ball State and uh, in terms of my academic sort of growth, it was such a, such a fantastic experience. I mean, uh, I owe Durham a lot for putting me on the right path, but I owe Ball State a lot for you know, making me into a better professional and a better sort of career person. And uh, my advisor and, and mentor and, and all that at the time, Dr. Lindsay Blom, was just terrific at that. I was very fortunate to have her sort of guiding me on that. And I spent, like I say, three terrific years there. And during my time at Ball State, I had lots of work with applied sports psychology, worked with some different teams at Ball State, uh, you know, Division One athletes and coaches. I then also had a lot of great experience in the clinical counseling world, um, which was terrific too. And I did my internship in a correctional facility and, you know, just had a, had a really sort of broad array of experiences at Ball State. And I think that's why it speaks so highly of that program is the, the volume and the sort of the depth of experience that I got there. It was absolutely brilliant. So, but of course, scared of employment, I decided to pursue a PhD and, uh, and reapplied, I suppose, actually to Florida State. And I was in, originally looking at counseling psychology. And then Dave Eccles, who is my advisor at Durham, he then moved back to Florida State. And uh, he gave me a call and he said, um, uh, would I be interested in, in coming to FSU? And it was rather strange because, of course, I've been rejected there for the master's program. But, but more than that, on my very first meeting with Dave at Durham, I was late. I was a, I was a, I was a freshman student just come in from a night out with his mates and you know not in the best of conditions and I was late to my very first meeting and you know five six years later he turned out to be my PhD advisor at Florida State so it really sort of came full circle and and that's where I sort of am now and you know it's been a brilliant time the first year at FSU it's a shame about second year with the virus but still I mean I feel very fortunate to be to be where I am, you know, at Florida State. So, so I suppose that's a bit of my, of my sort of academic educational journey. And I can, you know, I can speak to Tom because Tom and I spent a lot of time together at, at Ball State and we had some really terrific, you know, conversations just about the field of sports science and how, you know, it can, we can improve in different ways and how we can, you know, be better collaborators and, you know, knowledge brokers. And Tom and I just had some really fantastic chats and I got to see him, you know, putting a lot of time and effort into his craft over, over the two years that I was there. And then, you know, the three years that, that Tom was there. So, I mean, Ball State's a great program, you know, putting in a little bit of a plug for Ball State's kinesiology program, but Tom and I really, you know, benefited a lot from that program. So shout out to them. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we do with uh, our podcast and we ask our, our guests to sh- is to share, you know, an influential article that. Um, has been impactful for for their you know their ongoing studies and and Tom shared with us today a really really interesting article that really you know opened my my eyes to some of this and doing you know these intense you know research studies that you know we're all involved in we put a lot of you know pressure on ourselves to produce high quality work so so Tom shared an article from 
uh, Kumar and Cavallero that's entitled Researcher Self-Care and Emotionally Demanding uh, Research, a Proposed Conceptual Framework. Tom, can you elaborate a little bit more on, you know, the gist of this article and how it, you know, is impactful to your work right now? Yep. Yes, so I, I think the, the article, you know, which was, which, which, uh, was published in 2018, um, I think the article... I, I suppose, firstly, it really struck out to me um, because I think with any sort of initial framework or initial model paper, uh, it, it's just it's always exciting to read those because obviously, a you know you you may get ideas from it as a researcher or a practitioner yourself, but I think for me, really, it's so inspiring to see sort of these like initial model or initial framework papers because I think it shows that we're sort of pushing the limits of our knowledge and. I find that always very fascinating, whether it's qualitative or quantitative work, you know, being able to push sort of the, the realms of what we already know and start questioning things that we don't. And um, so I think that the paper really is quite poignant in my development because it does exactly that. It pushes me to think about my research. It pushed me to think about the type of impact that I wanted to have with my own research. But the article, as you mentioned, is an initial sort of framework and it talks about emotionally demanding research. Um, which is a, a sort of a form of research that uh, places a lot of emotional, uh, physical, uh, and also sort of uh, mental uh, demand on a researcher. And the consequence of that is that researchers become at risk of, of their health or well-being being depleted or, or threatened. And so emotionally demanding research uh, consists of four different types. Uh, you can research um, topics that are, that are quite sensitive, so sensitive issue topics, and I'll come to an example of that shortly. Uh, you, can, you can research um, or have experiences in research where you're exposed to trauma during the research process. So that's the second sort of form, exposure to trauma during research. You can also be researching a topic that brings up previous trauma for yourself as a researcher, which is a third sort of form of uh, EDR, emotionally demanding research. And then the, the final form or the final type of EDR uh, is the unexpected events where you know, a researcher can be collecting data in the field or, or have a participant respond in a way that's very unexpected and, and you're having to react as a researcher. And the, and the paper talks about these different types of EDR and how researchers can deal, you know, with the emotionally demanding nature of some of these types of research. So I think that's sort of a, a lay summary of what the paper talks about. And, and within the, there, there's a particular model that they illustrate through graphics and things, but, but that's the sort of general gist of it, yeah. Tom, can you, RJ, if you don't don't mind, I'm going to ask Tom a a quick follow-up. Can you give us like an example or just a few examples of of some EDR type of research? Someone who's kind of unfamiliar with, you know, someone who's unfamiliar with like qualitative, you know, types of research. Like what would be like some examples of of EDR research that would put, you know, a young professional uh, at risk for for some of these issues? Yeah. Well, I think think there's, there's two that really spring to mind, I think. Uh, and the reason they spring to mind is because they were most impactful for sort of pushing me towards getting more involved in EDR, emotionally demanding research. Um, and the first was actually a paper by uh, Francesca Cavallario, who is at Anglia Ruskin University in the UK. And um, Francesca published a confessional tale. And, in, and this is a form of qualitative research. And a confessional tale is where the researcher speaks to their own experience throughout the research process. And they confess 
the experience and the journey and the process that they went through. And Francesca, as, as well as two other colleagues on the paper, she spoke about um, her experience doing member reflections. Uh, member reflections is a interpretivist uh, method in qualitative work where participants are asked for their feedback on the data that they've given. And, and, and the purpose of member reflections is that they can create more insight, more depth to, to the data, to the discussion. And it's very interactive. And so Francesca performed focus groups with athletes and coaches from gymnastics. And these, these focus groups included the member reflections. And uh, ultimately the experience that she had was, um, was there was a lot, there was, I, I suppose hostility is quite a strong word, but there was a lot of discomfort from the coaches, in the coaches focus group, when they were provided with this member reflection. Um, due to the conflicts they felt about how they were dealing with their athletes. And the confessional tale that Francesca writes talks about how uncomfortable that was for her to deal with. The emotional toll that that sort of experience had on her, coupled with the fact that one of the coaches was also a friend of hers. And, you know, so that brings to sort of another dimension of EDR, which is the power dynamics with participants and how researchers have to deal with them. You know, these unexpected situations where you may lose friends in research. And so the first paper that I mentioned there by, by Francesca is just a terrific example of unexpected events and sensitive issues that get brought up, of course, two types of EDR. The second paper, which is um, still qualitative in nature, but, but it's more based on a questionnaire that was originally sent out. Um, was actually by uh, De Groot and Carmack, and both these papers I've spoken about were released this year. And De Groot and Carmack looked at um, people's responses or reactions to the 2016 presidential election in the United States. And they sent out a questionnaire that had, you know, uh, you know, a round of questions on. And a couple of the questions asked about, firstly, people's negative emotions towards Clinton losing. And, the, and another question was about... Um, if the participants were to speak of their disapproval for President Trump's election, uh, how would others react to that disapproval? And originally, these re the researchers, you know, um, the group in Carmack, they sent it out and, and, they, and they thought that perhaps they dealt with both sides of the coin, essentially. But the feedback they got from participants was, was pretty intense and it was a very sensitive topic to a lot of people and they had a lot of Trump supporters skew the results and question things like the researcher ethics, question things like researcher competency. They had um, participants stating that the researchers were biased towards you know, Clinton as opposed to Trump. So it was just this sort of explosion on the research, to the boards of the researchers from participants because, it, because of it being a very sensitive issue. And when we talk about EDR, and that is a type of EDR, sensitive, just researching sensitive issues, that's an example there. And if, you know, to really explain the sort of significance of that one participant in that study even suggested that the researchers should just go and die you know the paper actually talks about like you researchers should just go kill yourselves because it's so it's such an intense yeah. project so when you think about the emotional toll that must have had when they're reading the results mm -hmm. you know it's a very very difficult thing to, to deal with as a researcher and something that to be brutally honest nobody's really trained in that well yeah. which is why this is a new area of development so I suppose Francesca Cavallario's article and then De Groot and Carmack's article are two that really stick out to me, yeah. It's, that's, you know, you speak on, on some of those topics and some of those issues, and it's, you know, someone like myself who's, you know, a quantitative person, 
who never really gets exposed to that sort of thing. You know, we, you know, we bring in a, you know, a participant or an athlete and they come in and they do our little, you know, our jump landings and whatever. And then we say, okay, see you later. Like, you know, bring the next person in. And like, we don't really have to deal with, you know, that emotional toll, like some of the qualitative. So, so it's really interesting to, to hear your perspectives on, on that, you know, Tom, thanks for sharing you know, that information with us. It's, it's really interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, if I could just add very quickly too, I mean, it's very interesting. You mentioned about sort of quant versus qual and, and how like EDR plays a part in that. And I was thinking, you know, for qualitative, it's probably much more applicable because in qualitative research, the researcher is a, is a primary tool. Like interaction is how the data is. Right. But I was then thinking, but in quantitative, you know, you could be researching like a clinical mental health, you know, clinical disorder and get results back that are really very saddening to read. And, you know, so maybe it's not quite the same for quantitative. And, you know, when we're talking about how EDR research can improve or, you know, the future directions, it'd be terrific to see if the same sort of rules apply to quant researchers. You know, so it's not that it doesn't apply to quant. It's just perhaps in a slightly different way, you know. Right. And we and I think I think jumping off on that point. The best way to kind of describe it is in like qualitative research, the researcher is the tool in quantitative research. We use tools. There's like a, there's like a middle person there in between yeah. that, in between that. So like you said, it would be really interesting to kind of see uh, some of the similarities and differences. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, this article has, uh, talked a lot about um, self-care as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, with everything with EDR research, um, self-care is critical. And so what are some ways in which, uh, taking a step back, what are some ways in which institutions uh, and departments can address these issues of, of research or self-care? Um, you know, our, our research is one thing, but then on top of that, as you know, we're typically pressed to do all this coursework, you know, obligations to teaching, uh, limited with time and funding. So how can institutions um, do a better job to apply this uh, conceptual framework that, that we've discussed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a great question. I think um, I, I sort of feel like um, the first the first point that I'd like to make is that obviously when, when we're in grad school or we're, we're in academia, oftentimes we we have to wear um, multiple hats, you know. And so my advisor at Bull State, Dr. Blom, you know, she mentioned that multiple times. It, it's it's about being able to switch roles at the right time and. And of course, the consequence of that is it can be very exhausting and very demanding for people to keep having to do that. And you go from working with a client to reading a paper, and it's not always that straightforward, of course, as you both know. So emotionally, being in graduate school or in academia in general can be quite difficult because of those multiple hats. In terms of what institutions and departments can do, that's a great question. I, I think there's lots of sort of different, maybe there's three different levels I sort of I sort of hear that or, or, or view that that sort of towards and and the first is um at the very top level which is to do with irb and the paper sort of talks about this a little bit now of course with institutional review boards you know with ethic committees we talk a lot about protecting participants and rightly so you know it's obviously a, a very important part of research but i think irb and you know ethical boards they need to do more to to ask researchers how are you going to protect yourself during the research if things you know go south, if things go go wrong, and so I think at the sort of highest level, the macro level, institutional boards, ethical boards need to make that adjustment to give more sort of uh, 
incentive for people for researchers to consider themselves within the research process and then i think beneath that uh it comes sort of to the second sort of tier of it which is the macro level uh, which is the sorry the meso level and uh, that's more to do with advisors you know committee chairs you know faculty members all of these people i think need to be considerate of how when we do research it's not a matter of moving through each stage you know without issue like that you go sometimes you even go back and forth you know you write the lit review you go to the methods you come back to the you know and it changes and it's not always an easy ride so having advisors yeah having advisors <laughs> no it's not an easy ride well you know i'm you know all of us now are in you know in the process of you know writing our dissertations and we've yeah, done yeah. theses yeah. and everything and it's not linear i mean no. you're if you think it's going to be a linear ride in grad school you're in for a for a yeah. rude awakening you're always going back and forth exactly always. Exactly. And, and having staff, you know, whether it's your chair of your committee or, you know, if, even someone, you know, just like as a supervisor, having them understand the emotionally demanding nature of research, I think is really important. And then I think at the very sort of individual micro level, uh, students can always be more proactive. And I think we have to take some responsibility as researchers, even though we're early career researchers, taking responsibility and saying, I need to be aware of how this may affect me. What do I have in place to protect me? So I sort of see it, you know, as being three tiers. You have the ethical tier, you know, being more aware and cognizant of EDR. Then you have the advisor tier, the support network tier. Then you have the individual tier, which is, you know, the researcher themselves. Yeah. But that's a, that's a terrific question. It's, it's very hard to implement all those things at the same time, but you hope that you can, you can, you know, you just hope that. You know, you hit on something really uh, critical in terms of like the advisor sort of relationship. That's obviously very important for all of us. Um, and while I was reading this this article, I kept thinking about sort of, you know, myself and my journey to where I'm at. Yeah. And I'm sure Jason did the same thing. But um, so sometimes as students, right, we uh, we don't really want to verbalize how we feel and you know, what we're going through. You know, we, we, we kind of just keep it to ourselves. Um, and uh, so we're kind of always like in this in this sense of oh my god what will others think uh, especially our advisors and for our listeners uh, who are typically other doctoral students um, what is sort of one piece of advice that that, that you can give um, I know you hit on it a little bit but uh, yeah 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 I mean um, I think really for me that the main thing is um, like at the individual level, what can we do? I think the, the sort of best way to go about it is through things like peer consultation groups and, and peer support groups. Um, and, you know, the, I suppose the reason I say that is because, you know, one of my friends, uh, she's now at Loughborough University in England. Uh, her name's Anna, Anna Farello, and her and I put together an idea uh, of designing a, a peer consultation group um, and the reason for it was, you know, we had some different people from you know, different universities, different diverse research interests, supplied experiences. But the reason we had it is to form a supportive network. Mm -hmm. And we meet once a month and we'll have various topics that we'll discuss, uh, similar to your podcast, I suppose, in a way. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, we'll meet, so we'll meet once a month to talk about these different things. And you know, for an example, we met uh, a couple of weeks back and we spoke a lot about the situation with social justice at the moment in the world and how that affects our work with clients and you know things like this and and the great thing about it i believe is that 
we're all students in the group. And of course, there, there are things that you have to monitor. Of course, we're an experienced compared to, you know, advisors who have had 30 years experience. But the, the best thing about it, I think, is how organic it is and genuine it is to the student sort of population. And so I think that having peer consultation groups for students is such a brilliant way to have a supportive network. You can talk about ideas openly. Uh, you know, you can... You can even further your own sort of interests and, and ideas by you know, collaborating with people in it if, if it goes that direction. So it's just a great platform, I think, for you know, looking after, when we talk about researcher self-care, I suppose, having an opportunity to, to use your peers uh, you know, and your friends, you know, your colleagues, people that you'll be in the field with now for, for hopefully a, lot, a long time, using those people wisely and supportively. Uh, I think peer consultation groups are a brilliant way brilliant way to or a brilliant thing to do really for graduates and that's a great point Tom because you know especially this next six months the next you know however long you know we're in the situation those are going to be even more important because students now you know we have new PhD students coming in you know we have students who are trying to complete dissertations or theses you know these times are very stressful for us and having other you know colleagues and other students who are going through similar situations to be able to you know just talk through some of these these problems or some of the things that they're feeling, I think are going to be extremely important for a researcher's mental health, yeah. you yeah. know, as we navigate these kind of really uncharted territories. So that's a great point yeah. that you brought up. Yeah, no, and I just think to add to that too, um, you know, of course you can make these groups quite specific. You can have one that's specific to research. You can have one that's more applied. You can have a more sort of general one like we have where you can bring up different things, research or applied, you know, but I think, it really is just a, a great opportunity for for students to realise that that they're all in in a very similar boat and can talk about things very honestly because being a graduate student is very unique and it is very stressful and you know, if you have research and applied work or clinical work going on simultaneously there is a lot to it like I said there's multiple hats and so having a space where you can talk about that sort of stuff is vital um, and the other thing I mean with it as well is sometimes you, you'll create these supportive groups and you may only have two or three people that show interest. Yeah. But for those two or three people, it, it could be a really important hour a month. Yeah. You know, it could be a really significant part of their journey. And, you know, so I, I think it's always important to view it by its impact, not by its popularity as well, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think institutions and departments definitely need to, to hone in on this this aspect of it um i think it's kind of just like here uh welcome to our program and do your thing uh yeah. you know it's we need to kind of really um hone in on this aspect of it i know universities uh in the states especially do a really good job in terms of having these services uh, like psychological services and mm-hmm. and i think that's that's i mean i i take full advantage of it i mean i yeah. you know i go ahead and talk to a therapist you know just kind of yeah. leave it all out there and see what happens and it feels so good just kind of you know doing that but uh, so now if we yep. shift some gears uh to yeah. sort of uh, our mutual interest in, uh, in, in sport and coaching. Um, how can coaches apply a similar model in their student athletes who have to balance not only sort of the rigor of academia, but also athletics? Um, we, know, we know coaches are very much in skill development. They're experts in that. Um, and so how can uh, coaches use this, uh, use your expertise and, and this model that you, you gave us in this, in this paper um, to help them understand self-care for their athletes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great question. I think it, it draws firstly on one very important thing, which is that um, when we talk about science to practice, you know, it, it really relates to to uh, researchers. It relates to athletes. It relates to coaches. You know, it relates to everybody involved in it. And and coaches can definitely take something from some of the literature that's out there, whether it's in EDR or obviously other things, expertise or whatever. I think you know what what really. Um, is important to coaches or what coaches can really focus on. The first, I suppose, is just having an openness to this idea of self-care. And uh, it seems like such a, a simple point, but I think it, it is often overlooked, um, the importance of, of self-care and the importance of athletes taking time, whether it's you know, a personal matter or an academic matter or even maybe a performance-related matter to, de- to deal with these things independently in, and in their own time. Uh, and that's what self-care is about. It's about looking after yourself, you know, being in charge independently of, of how you operate. And, and I think if coaches had an openness to understanding what that is, that's a great first step. There's a second step, which I think is really pivotal on top of that, I think coaches also need to try and engage in it themselves so they can see the benefit of self-care because it's all very well for the, for the three, for the three of us here to be talking about EDR, but then, you know, but then when it actually comes to it, you know, we don't necessarily research it at all, you know, so having, having knowledge on something is very different to having experience. And, and I think coaches do a far better job at promoting something like researchers do when they actually have experience and they get their feet wet really, you know, so having coaches test out self-care so they can know the benefits and then they know why it's important for athletes to do it. And then I, I suppose really the final point in regards to that, that I was thinking of just then as well, I think coaches can sort of foster this model of, of researcher self-care or, or in, I suppose in their case, coach self-care or athlete self-care um, by just having a, a very person oriented environment. And uh, it seems very cliche and it seems very, uh, you know, rhetoric and everything. But I, but I think that um, having per- people put first, you know, people are, as priorities, I think is a, is a really important way to instill a culture where self-care is then respected. Because if you put people first, you understand that each individual has unique needs, unique desires at certain times, unique contexts and experiences that impact them all the time. And so if you have a, a person-first culture or, or a people-first culture, you just promote the opportunity to engage in self-care. It's very facilitated for self-care when you promote the person over just like an athlete, you know, because of course they know they're athletes, they know that's their job, they know that's performance and that's important to them. But there is more than that. There is a personal life, an academic life, all sorts of things that go on that. So putting a person-first culture, I think, sort of ties everything together, really. And that, that's a great point too, Tom, because you know, and some of the athletes that I've spoken to when they're, you know, say they're at, you know, a university, uh, you know, the first thing that they, that they mention is, you know, they only identify as an athlete, you yeah. know, they're an athlete first and then, you know, so-and-so second, but yeah. we know that, you know, the majority of these athletes, you know, they stop playing after university because, you know, because it's obviously very difficult to make it to a professional level. So if these athletes have gone through a, four or five year program and have only identified as an, as an athlete, yeah. when they, when they get the sport removed, you know, they remove a big portion of their identity. So it's important that we develop, you know, these skills and, you know, developing a culture of you're a person first, yeah. and then you're, you know, these other hats that you wear second. And I think you've, you've hit on some really, really good points. I wrote down, you know, this line, cause I thought it was great is saying, 
you know, having knowledge on something is much different than having experience. You know, we can all read on the literature and we can say, you know, X, Y, and Z, but until you actually get into, you know, a setting like that and are experiencing these situations, it's just, it's a completely different, a completely different ball game. And I, I, I feel, I feel, well, I totally agree with that statement. I feel slightly hypocritical as well, because of course, as a graduate student, you're expected to go and, and do training with athletes and things, you know, and try and try this out. But, you know, of course, the only way you get experience is by trying things out. So I think, you know, just, but just keeping that in mind, you know, I think it's great to read about these things and it's great to understand them conceptually from that perspective, but I don't think anything quite matches getting actually in the environment and, uh, you know, practicing and learning and getting hands-on experience with it. I think it's, it's the best way to prepare really is the best way to, to deal with those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's getting into the trenches and you know what, and you know, some of the things that I mentioned too, was some of like the, the newer graduate students, it's okay if you make mistakes early on, you yeah. know, you're going to, you're going, you're going to make a lot of mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. navigating a PhD program, not navigating a high level, you know, academic environment. It's okay. You know, you're going to learn and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to, and you're going to get better from it. So yeah. it's just one of those things where students can't be afraid of being wrong. You know, it's, yeah. you're not going to get every answer, right. Whether it's school or whatever, but yeah. Tom, just to transition just a, a little bit, um, you know, we know with the COVID situation, you know, things are very dynamic right now and up in the air, but what were some of the, you know, the current studies that you had ongoing and what were some of the future research initiatives that you guys you know, are planning to do, you know, at, at FSU? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think, uh, right now I, I sort of have three areas of, of, uh, interest or also three active research areas. Uh, the first is, um, about EDR. So, um, uh, myself, my colleague Anna, who I mentioned at Loughborough, and then uh, my other colleague at Florida State, Carly Block, we're, we're working together uh, on a project that's a, that's exploring researchers' experiences of EDR, and we're looking at how they um, utilize uh, self-compassion to deal with uh, emotionally demanding research experiences. Um, one of the limitations of the literature so far on EDR on emotionally demanding research uh, is that there's not a lot of empirical work and by that what we mean is there's lots of reports about how researchers experienced the the project but there's not a lot of research that goes in maybe interviews or asks questions about the project so about the uh, researchers experience so we're trying to do that and we're trying to place our own unique twist on it I suppose by looking at self-compassion and the role that that plays and you know it should be a really interesting study we're we're progressing through it nicely and uh, I think our plan is to have interviews and, and focus groups to discuss the different parts and to facilitate discussion and things, but, but that's the first sort of uh, project that's ongoing. The second is, is a project I'm doing for Florida State, which I'm um, about to start data collection with, and I'm looking at uh, the psychological preparation of expert jiu-jitsu referees. Um, so my undergraduate dissertation and then my master's thesis were, were both on pre-performance routines. Um, but I decided to broaden out slightly and look at um, like auxiliary roles. And so I was interested in looking beyond the athlete. And so I decided to look at referees. And uh, the sport of jiu-jitsu is, is quite a, in sports psychology literature at least, is, or martial arts in general, is probably quite under-researched. And so um, sort of taking a, a maybe a little bit unique population as well and, and seeing sort of that side of it is going to be fascinating. And I'm really excited to do that. And uh, unfortunately, you know, there will be no sort of field work there. It will be, again, you know, interviews, focus groups, you know, discussions, those sorts of things. And 
you know, it's a shame I can't get out in the field, but but I'm very excited for that. I think it will shed some interesting light, um, you know, on, on psychological preparation. And uh, yeah, so so that's the second. And then the third is what I'm working on with with Dave, my advisor, and then a couple of other students, in, and that's a mental rest or psychological rest. So we recently got a paper published in JASP, which is the Journal of Applied Sports Psychology, um, looking at uh, how athletes sort of conceptualise and experience rest um, or psychological rest. But we are currently collecting data or close to finishing data collection on a study with coaches. We're looking at Division One coaches and how they uh, perceive and get psychological rest and the barriers to psychological rest. So we're just exploring different options at the moment of sort of broadening it out a little bit. And I think we have one study lined up where we're looking at the use of uh, photo ethnography. So we'll have athletes take pictures of how they get rest and then we'll have them discuss their images in interviews and things. So we're trying to be quite creative with the psychological rest, but that's a, that's an ongoing sort of area of interest for both Dave and myself, actually. Yes. Yeah, so, so those are the sort of three areas I'm, I'm working on right now, which is, which is great. I love all three of them. I'm very fortunate again to be doing them. That's really interesting. And that was one of the things, Tom, when, when we first met at Ball State that, you know, I think we really hit it off on, you know, we're in our, you know, our respective fields and doing our research, but we're just, we're very involved and we're very passionate about what we do. We want to better, at the end of the day, you know, we're all here, we're doing this podcast, you know, we're doing our PhD studies because we found an interest and we want to help our community, whether that's athletes, whether that's researchers. And I think, you know, I'm excited to, you know, hear some of the stuff that's, that's going to be upcoming, you know, from Florida State and from yourself and your lab. And, you know, we'll reference some of the, the pieces that you already mentioned. I, you know, you mentioned the, the psychological rest in the athletes. We'll definitely put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. And, you know, we're excited and we're glad, you know, you shared, you know, your, your insight and your experiences with us in this, in this podcast. So thanks again. Just to kind of, you know, wrap things up, Tom, what's, what's kind of one, you know, big takeaway that, you know, a practitioner can, can take away from your experiences so far? Yeah. Oh, one take something, to be, something to be, I guess, I guess, I know it's a very, it's kind of a, a loaded question, but something to just be, you know, mindful of if, if it's a, a coach or, or a researcher yeah. when they're navigating an environment like we're in right now with, with COVID, especially if it's, there's yeah, going to yeah. be a lot of emotional, you know, demanding situations that we'll be in. Well, I think, I think you just hit on it there actually. So I think, um, it comes back to, to what we were you know, mainly talking about in the podcast today, but, and, and that's really the fact that emotions exist uh, in everything that we do, whether we're a researcher, a practitioner, you know, a scientist, you know, whatever it may be, whatever role we have, a coach, an athlete, emotions are, are present in what we do. And so I think rather than looking to sort of suppress those emotions and I, and, uh, you know, there'll be different sort of um, qualitative researchers that will, will have different opinions on this. But I think we should be, rather than suppressing them, we should be embracing them. And we should be using emotions as very powerful tools to to connect deeper with the project or the person that we're, we're working with or working on. Uh, I think that emotions bring us closer to the work that we do. And, and uh, if I have sort of one key takeaway for a practitioner or a researcher, it's to fully embrace those emotions and use them to get closer to the work that you do. Because when you're close to the work, you're more motivated, you're more inspired to do good work, you're more passionate about the work. And the, the likelihood is that by having all those experiences, you're going to do probably better work. It's going to be better, more rigorous, more in-depth, intriguing work. So 
the role that emotions play, whether it's a practitioner in the field or a researcher or whatever role it may be, I think are so pivotal. And I think we just have to harness and, and almost be proud of those emotions, like really harness them and, tre and treasure them because they're part of what being human, human is, really. I think just emotions in general are very, very important in everything we do. That, Tom, that was, that was great. That was absolutely great. And I think people yeah. really appreciate, you know, the conversation that we, that we just had and, you know, the, the words that you just shared with us throughout this podcast, especially navigating through these times. So we really appreciate, you know, sharing, sharing their knowledge because it's, it's going to be great stuff for people to listen to, you know, and they're going through difficult times right now. They need, they need the support from their peers and, you know, sharing your, your insights and how they can, you know, better themselves for self-care is, is going to be some invaluable information. So thanks again for, for sharing that with us. Yeah, no, thank you for providing the space. I hope um, I hope it's helpful for people that listen and uh, I hope it was intriguing for the both of you as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very, it was very good. So thanks again, Tom. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks, yeah, thanks very much. Take care. Um, but uh, it's important because, you know, they talked about, we talked earlier about task relevant, irrelevant. Right. That's what functional relevant is, yeah. right? We, we, we use what, you know, we used, uh, we use maybe the Jacobian matrix or whatever to figure out what's task relevant, what's irrelevant. And, and if there's, again, it's using the uncontrolled manifold. I don't want to go into like the actual methodology of it. Right. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, but the fact is, is that just, again, this is the, the, uh, probably the tip of the iceberg of what motor learning has gone into in terms right. of the brain. Um, it's such a new field though, yeah. right? Like it's just a, it's very recently developed. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're looking at, you're looking at, Hey, fields. an external focus where I tell you to focus on antenna movement effect, nothing related to your body, right. um, sort of increases intercortical inhibition. And then I tell you that using an external focus of attention is, uh, like affects functional variability. Um, that's all in all that says that an external focus of attention actually is very efficient. Right. Um, and but in, we typically in the past are, you know, from a coaching perspective, we typically adopt an internal focus. Yeah. Would you say that's correct? And even from potentially even a clinical standpoint, a rehabilitative yeah. standpoint, it's an internal focus. Yeah. Would you say that's in your experience going through like ACLR? And oh, yeah. I think like that's more of an internally. Even coaching. I mean, even you know, just from just, you know, again, we're, we're pretty. Uh, uh, you know, we visit a lot of programs around Vegas yeah. and just, you know, visiting different uh, sports teams and stuff. Uh, it, it is very internal. And, you know, obviously the literature has been there for so long and there's much more, right? I think, uh, and it's funny because now I, I bring it up, right? I bring up internal and external. People roll their eyes because it's like, the research, first of all, the research has been out for what, 20 plus years now? It's pretty definitive um, too. It's pretty definitive stuff. Um, and they roll their eyes and I'm like, okay, that, that's okay. I mean, fine, I get it. But there's so much more to just the attentional focus. Right. Attentional focus has that sort of distance, has that direction, right. um, different verbs. And, and I mean, the, what I like is all this, you know, this linguistic stuff, right. but, um, you know, just, yeah, I think it's, it's super important. I mean, if you look into psychology, for example, I think this is actually a good, uh, a, a important for if there's any, you know, coaches or clinicians uh, on listening right now. Um, there's something called proximal and distal goal setting, mm -hmm. right? So if, if for example, during, um, during rehab, I tell, uh, you know, I tell a patient or, or an athlete um, that the goal 
right now is to do this versus the goal in five minutes is to get this. There'll be two very different responses, mm, right? Okay. Um, at the same time, if I instruct an athlete, let's just say for motor performance purposes, a volleyball player to hit the ball in the court 10 times, then the very next sort of rep that he or she does, I say, I need you to do this now. You see how you went from a distal sort of goal, right. like you want 10 in total, right. to now a proximal goal. I think that's very, very sort of relevant because what we'll do is, you know, I want you to do three sets of 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's your distal goal. Um, but if we shift that to more proximal goals, what I want you to do right now, it's shown in the literature that it increases intrinsic motivation, increases confidence. Um, and by doing so, you increase positive affect, which mm -hmm. again, uh, a study uh, I think by Rowe and colleagues in 06 showed that just positive effect, also a positive effect is a, uh, is a tool of enhanced expectancies. Um, it increases the breadth of attentional focus, meaning you are able to attend to more, um, I guess, task relevant, irrelevant mm -hmm. stuff thereby increasing functional variability, thereby perhaps even, you know, like I said with the groom study, increasing intercortical inhibition. Um, and there's little psych psychological concepts that are very important that we can... Let, me ask, you, let yeah. me ask you a question in terms of some of the motor learning stuff. Has that gone, has that gone into more... Has that gone into dual tasking at all? Or is it still no, not so yet? Because, nice, the, re yeah. because the, reason, yeah. the reason I ask is because... Um, you know, from my perspective, um, and some of, uh, you know, concussion return to play and things like that, when they uh, assess like gait, when we do gait analyses and things like that, and under dual task conditions, so you, you know, you're walking, but then you're also performing a cognitive task. You're doing, right. you're counting backwards by sevens, you're, you know, counting months backwards, things like that. Um, you're doing a, you know, a, a Stroop task, you know, our classical Stroop task, you see a, a word in red, but then... You know, it's, um, you see the word green, but it's in red, but you still have to state that it's green, things like that. You'll see not only worse cognitive performance, but you also see um, altered mechanical performance as yeah. well. You'll see gait, gait is uh, more conservative, so we'll see decreased, you know, walking velocities. We'll see, you know, more sway side to side. So it's more of an instable, conservative gait strategy um, post-concussion. Um, so I was just wondering if there had been anything, you know, from the motor learning perspective as to, you know, dual task performance, if that's even been touched on yet. So there's definitely some dual task stuff, but again, you know, we're, we're sticking to tasks that are not relevant. I mean, you're talking about uh, sitting at like uh, maybe like a computer screen. I mean, I, I, they may be relevant, but I, I just haven't delved that research that much yet that uh, at least I haven't seen it. I haven't yeah. seen stuff that's very applicable yet. Yeah, in terms sure, of dual tasking. Yeah, I'm sure there's stuff out tasking, there. I'm yeah. not saying that there's not, but uh, you know, when it comes to this type of injury prevention, uh, enhancing sort of performance, um, not so much. There's been learning studies mm -hmm. and dual task, but mm -hmm. not in the performance and, and rehab realm. And, and again, I might be wrong, but just from what I know. Um, yeah, just hasn't gotten there yet. Because I could see, I could see, you know, potential applicability there if we can, you know, because at the end of the day, what what is sport? It's mul it's multitasking. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's 
sure. know, you're receiving, you're receiving stimuli from the environment and you're performing a, an intended movement goal. Yeah. Whether that's avoiding a defender, you know, whether that's making a key defensive play or things like that. But, um, you know, just looking at, you know, from my perspective of, you know, a post-concussion athlete, if they do have, you know, residual deficits in attention, attention's, you know, you mentioned attention a lot yeah. um, in this last uh, little segment that we talked about. And, you know, we've, we've had some really good discussions in our the cognitive psych course that we're taking. If, you know, people yeah. don't know, Harjeev and I actually take 90% of our coursework together here. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been taking a few psych classes with Harjeev, and which I've really enjoyed. It really gets me out of my, you know, engineering, you know, biomechanics, you know, little shell there, and gets me into the the cog psych stuff, which is which is which is great stuff. But we've talked about recently in in, in class attention, yeah, and how that's you know it's that's it's a limited. It you only have so much attentional yeah. capacity, and you know we're always receiving more stimuli. Than we are capable of holding yeah. in our, you know, in our short term, in our working memory and things like that in our short term, and so what's really kind of spurred a lot of thought myself is whether you know these these different tests of attention can be utilized in a concussion you know management strategy so that we can see you know is attentional capacity actually directly affected pre concussion to post concussion are these athletes you know, in terms of, you know, future lower body injuries, do they just not have the attentional, you know, capacity available that they used to have? I mean, is that, is that affected? Is that, you know, a potential mechanism that's, that's leading to, you know, higher rates of injury post-concussion? You know, it's things that I've, that I've yeah. thought about the last so, couple of weeks. You know, attention is it's kind of sort of defined as, uh, you know, uh, a state in which cognitive resources are focused on uh, certain aspects of the environment rather than uh, rather than on others uh, and the central nervous system is in state of readiness uh, to respond to stimuli. So you look at like the cortical, uh, cortical spinal excitation and inhibition. Uh, you know, a lot of us and us too talk about um, affordances, perception, action. Um, that's all has, that all has to be attended to, right? It, if there's no sort of attention uh, there it just—it's not like it just happens. You need to attend to certain things. Um, intention is a conscious process. We learn in class, right? Right. Intention is a conscious process. So, you know, uh, there's no really there's no such thing as uh, something that doesn't involve conscious processing. Intention involves conscious processing. Intention leads leads to attention, mm-hmm, uh, which mm-hmm. which allows well, us like to like attend to certain things. To um, the affordance and the perception and the affordance <laughs> aspect of this. And I'm not educated in, in Gibsonian psychology. I, I, I was blessed to do a project with Dr. Andrew Wilson and stuff uh, when I was in England at the Carnegie Institute of Sport, but I am not sort of an expert there yet. Um, but I, there, but I will say You're that you need intention to go to attention, and then the affordance is the result of that. Right? It's not what's already there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, but I got to be able to understand what the hell that is right right i brought brought up that cup example like if i don't know that that's a cup that's graspable (laughs) to my right right you know my my movement pattern is gonna be very different and it gets it kind of gets back into that paper i talked about with the the eco paper too if you know if they can't perceive that the size of the ball is too big for the hole 
you know, they're going to yeah. make a mistake. You know, exactly. and that gets back into sport too. If you're perceiving that your defender, you know, isn't, you know, I guess my example would be if you perceive that your defender is somewhere that they actually aren't, you aren't anticipating them to be yeah. in the next, you know, whatever, in the next movement pattern, and you make an incorrect movement response to what you what you falsely perceive, and then you could have exactly. a, you know an injury and things like that, and that's how you know mechanisms of injuries could potentially yeah, and I think this brought about this goes right into how we give instruction and feedback because um, you know me personally and the work that I'm I get to do here and, and my dissertation work is it's basically on the role of distance right. right. Every single piece of instruction, every single piece of feedback has some sort of distance component to it. Um, for example, like I said below, uh, before, um, you know, land quietly, land softly. These things have different uh, distance components. Um, and so then there's, an a- then there's an aspect to that of, you know, there's performance versus execution. Um, and so I always go back to volleyball because it's this is a sport that I that I love to play and I, and I grew up playing. Um, and so, you know, for volleyball, we, a performance instruction, a performance cue can be to hit the ball very hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, an execution cue would be step toward the target. And this is just for serving purposes, yep. right? Um, however, what happens is in, in terms of this distance effect is uh, we'll give a proximal uh, sort of uh, a cue the feedback that we give is going to be distal or vice versa when what I'm finding here is that you should be giving proximal instruction, proximal feedback, distal instruction, distal feedback and that's um, across very different skill levels and so uh, you know that's just one little portion of how uh, we talk about intention, attention, we talk about affordances, that's all of that is a resultant of, first of all, the word the words I'm comprehending, which we'll save that for another podcast when we talk right. about comprehension. Right. Um, well, that's, be but like, you know, if if I say to you know hit the target versus you know um, uh, I don't know for example kick the ball or mm-hmm. you know kick towards a target whatever it may be there's there's a kick the ball is more proximal to my body. Right. Going for the target is more distal. That's very, it's, it's, it, they're very different sort of, again, intention, attention, right. and all that. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, in, in in the weeks to come, I mean, I will gladly sort of talk about different things in terms of language. Um, you know, there is so much, so much to be learned, especially if, if any of you are, are PTs or coaches that are interested in this stuff. Um, really, I, I urge you to look into more of the cognitive psychology literature um, you know, they'll they'll give you a whole rundown on nouns, pronouns, action verbs, adverbs. Um, adverbs have different manners to it. Uh, adjectives, uh, when to add an adverb. Um, for example, prepositions, uh, conjunctions. Like these little things that we learn in English class growing up, have a huge effect in how we behave and, and how we perform. Um, and, and you know, like I mentioned before, stable variable affordances. But one thing I will say, just as, as like a uh, sort of um, uh, summary of of the language aspect of it, and I will I will get into this for sure at, on a later date because I think we've surpassed quite a 
um, almost an hour or so right. uh, here. But uh, uh, look, nouns, we, we all know this, but nouns will describe something, verbs will elicit action, adjectives will describe a noun, and adverbs will elicit control. That's sort of like a summary of what, you know, how do we develop our cues? That's a that question I get all the time is uh, you want to develop it so that you can always add an aspect of enhanced expectancies. You can always add an aspect of autonomy support. You can always add an aspect of external focus of attention. Uh, you can always then add an aspect of verbs, perhaps even an adverb. Uh, it really depends on what you're looking for, but your words can optimize the motor behavior of your of your uh, patient or or your athlete. Um, you know, talk less, but if you're more towards an external focus, have a person talk more. Um, talk about the good. Give options. Um, and you know. Uh, on that note, and the last thing I want to say about the language aspect of it is uh, we talk about distance, we talk about intention, attention, we talk about all that. Words modify space perception. I think that's huge. Space perception is just an example of our distance uh, effect. Um, and uh, that's, I, I think, super important because for for modifying this, this space perception, that modifies our categorical uh, perception on how we categorize certain things. Um, then that affects sort of our, you know, abstract versus concrete words. And the looking at language will probably take another three hours, but I'm going to just stop that there. But that's super important I think we, I to think, understand. I, I, think, when, I think, when you know, kind of wrapping this up, I think yeah. you and I have a lot of work to do in, yeah. terms of, in terms of this stuff because, you know, from, you know, what I've seen, I think you can agree on this as well, is that a lot of people don't necessarily see it from our perspective yeah. is how you know, your side of things, your motor learning things directly affects my output of things. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, what we're taking in, what we perceive, what we afford and how that affects the actual movement outcomes. Yeah. I think, I think we've historically just been so focused on the outputs, the outputs of the system yeah. that we don't necessarily give enough uh, respect in a sense towards the actual inputs yeah. that's being placed into the system and how that's affecting. So I think, you know, I'm really, you know, excited to continue to have these sort of conversations because I know I always learn a lot when you and I have discussions, not only on the podcast, but just informal discussions where, you know, we work in the same office now, yeah. which is awesome. We have just impromptu conversations about these sort of things and they really, they facilitate a lot of things that, you know, that I'm using now in, in my research yeah. because at the end of the day, you know, my, my dissertation work here is, you know, it's a brain injury and, uh, you know, I'm learning more and more about cognition and how language affects cognition, how, you know, verbs and how different, uh, you know, setting up different environments for yeah. an individual to perform. I, you know, I'm really just happy that, it's, you know, you and I can, can connect on these levels and have these sort of conversations. It's really cool because, you know, we came in here, you know, you're on the biomechanics track, I'm on the, the motor learning track, right. yet... You're now incorporating motor learning, and I'm now incorporating biomechanics. Right, we're right? both. Yeah, it's like, we're both. It's like, yeah, so if people don't doing, know, yeah. <laughs> so Harjeev and I are are doing are working on right now a motor learning study and looking at um, how some of our motor learning principles from the optimal side of things affect squat performance. Yeah. Um, and then Harjeev is also working on a. Uh, we want to discuss also a functional variability. Functional variability yeah, we're, study. We're looking that's, at that, it's just biomechanics stuff, but we're also adding the motor learning. Component to yeah. motor control, 
uh, component to it and you know obviously you're incorporating more learning stuff into your work yeah so we're um, both we're you know so. we really are you know when Harjeev and I first got here we really wanted to make it an emphasis that you know we wanted to learn more about each other's fields yeah. and how we can apply that to make our you know our knowledge base stronger and I think you know these podcasts are just another are another way to do that and I think you know I hope I hope at the at, you know at the end of this podcast and in future podcasts you know people take away some some information that they didn't know going into yeah. it you know after after listening to us and you know we're we're still growing in in both of our respected fields but i think every yeah. day we get you know closer and closer to that you know that yeah i mean ever that we, ultimate goal of we are absolutely no experts at this point but we are uh we are learning as much as we can we're this, is, this is just our way this is just our way to kind of put out what we're reading to you guys, put what we're figuring out to you guys, and, and rightfully so, right? The things we're doing haven't really been talked about in the literature. Um, so, like you said before, we have a lot of work to do, um, and that's what drives us. That's what that's why Jason wakes up at 4 in the morning, is in the lab by 5. Um, yeah, I was in there uh, today early, and it's 10 know. p.m. right now. We're just wrapping up the yeah, podcast. Yeah, so, you know, so. We, we, we hope to do our part, um, and, you know, we hope that our work inspires you to not only apply it, but... You know, ask challenge, us questions. challenge, yeah, challenge, it, us. challenge, challenge, challenge yourselves too. Because yeah. I think that's that's something that you and I have done a pretty good job about. Is you know we're trying to challenge some of these you know preconceived notions as to you know in terms of injury risk and things like that. How it's been classically studied, but now looking at it from a more you know contemporary holistic perspective, as like, okay, maybe it's not just a mechanical issue. Yeah. Maybe it's not just a biomechanics issue. You know, m- you know, maybe it's you know, some other issues that we really haven't explored yet. And I think, you know, the work that we're doing, you know, in our PhDs are really going to, you know, kind of push some of those things and to really get yeah. people to really ask some, some tougher questions as to, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, ACL injury rates aren't, aren't decreasing. You know, I mean, we've had so much literature yeah. out on ACL injury risk factors, but they're not going away. And the re-injury rate is still there. Yeah, like, they're not know, going away. So, I mean, something's got to give now at this point. Yeah. I mean, we can't just keep doing our whole, you know, we do our, our biomechanical analysis and, you know, our, you know, things like that. I think we need to start pushing a little bit more into, definitely more into, you know, cognition, just overall, you know, more to learning and just how we learn skills yeah. and how those, that, that skills that we learn transfer into our sporting environment. And so... Yeah, what do you think? Do you think we're, we're good I for think, tonight? I think we're good. Um, you know, I just want to put like a little thing out there that uh, we are always looking for people to write for our blog. Um, we just want to get more perspectives. Yeah. We just want to see, you know, things that, that other individuals are doing in a, in a practical setting yeah. at the moment from a research perspective. Um, and just, you know, just keep building up yeah. this knowledge base through our blog and through our podcast. It's pretty much an open call. I mean, you talk about, I don't, we don't, I mean, we're not, we're, we're pretty, pretty open. Yeah, we're pretty any, open anything to... you want to talk about. It's just a platform for you. I think well, for me and Jason, you know, just having a platform helped us out a lot. We're, yeah. you know, we able, we're able Being to able write. to connect with a lot of individuals yeah. too. Um, and, you know, we'll be sure to, to bring on some people here on the podcast, um, and, and talk more. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think we've talked for quite a while. I think this is a good uh, one. This is a really good one. So, we, were, we were really excited for this podcast. We hope, uh, we hope the listeners, yeah. uh, enjoy, enjoy some of our thoughts and, you know, some of our perspectives and, you know, look for, look for us again pretty soon. We'll, we have a lot more, I think, good yeah. discussions coming up in the future. So awesome. Thanks again, guys. All right. Thank you.